Hello, hello. Welcome to Psychedelic Healing. This is your host, Sonia Cato. I am very honored to introduce and welcome today's guest, someone I look up to very much for his work in the psychedelic field, Dr. Scott Fisher. He's a board certified psychiatrist who took interest in psychedelic therapy and research, and now is lead facilitator, trainer, and clinical program director for the Siegel Trials Center for Psychedelic Research. Welcome, Dr. Fisher. Thank you so much for having me, Sonia. It's great to be here. Oh, yes, yes. I remember uh, actually seeing you on stage at the Microdose conference a few years ago, and then hearing you were in Fort Lauderdale, I kind of stalked you <laughs> until I saw you walk out after uh, your speech and uh, kind of you know, introduce myself, got your card and kind of been trying to kind of follow you along in all your, uh, all your work. So it's actually a very (laughs) big honor to have you here today. Thank you. Yeah. I remember our first meeting well. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I'm like, you're from Fort Lauderdale. We got to (laughs) meet. We have to work together. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. Just want to see how much we've both grown. Oh, I know. I know. Definitely. I think uh, I had just started my ketamine clinic and you were actually doing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which is something that I wanted to kind of tap in to possibly bring into my clinic at the time. But mm-hmm. then you started working for Siegel. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So how has so. that been? Actually, my big question is, how did you transition? What inspired you in that transition from general psychiatry into transitioning into the psychothera- uh, psychedelic therapies? I mean, there was a variety of factors that led to that transition, and it definitely wasn't an overnight transition. So yeah, I was doing kind of a general psychiatry private practice here in South Florida. And the practice, you know, was very busy, you know, from, you know, sort of successful from that standpoint. I was just feeling like people weren't getting the sort of results from our standard treatments, you know, the medication and the psychotherapy typically done in the community, not that you know, no one was getting results, but that just overall on average, it seemed very disappointing um, in terms of the effectiveness and even sometimes the safety of these treatments, whether it's, you know, the SSRI antidepressant medications, whether it's the stimulant medications for ADHD, um, the benzodiazepines like for anxiety, just, you know, didn't seem to go so well for very many people. So I was really getting burnt out doing that sort of practice. And even though you know, my practice was otherwise successful and I think I was really well liked in the community and by my patients. You know, when you're trying to help people and your tools just tools in your toolkit just don't aren't getting the job done, you know, it gets really frustrating and really sad. Um like as more research has come out, we've come to see that, you know, treatment resistance and ineffective treatments that are that we're using is just it's very, very common. So it, it wasn't particular at all to my practice. It's just it's a problem that we have in psychiatry and mental health treatment in general right now, I would say. So that was one thing. I was like, how can I continue doing this? I need to find a better way to help people. And then some of my own personal kind of psychedelic use was very personally transformative, as well as I started to see, this was back in probably 2016 or so, um, where a couple phase two studies of psilocybin to treat anxiety in life-threatening terminal cancer illness was coming out from Johns Hopkins and NYU. And the studies were just looking, you know, so incredibly positive. I was like, whoa, like, okay, like there's a few, where there's smoke, baby, there's fire. So um, that led to me in 2018 doing a certificate in psychedelic therapy and research 
at the California Institute of Integral Studies, which is located in San Francisco. At the time, it was kind of a one-of-a-kind program for healthcare professionals who wanted to follow, to go into um, psychedelic therapies and treatments. And that program really, really helped me. You know, I learned so much and also got very well networked. And that's what ended up getting me involved with uh, the Siegel uh, Trials Group that's here in South Florida. We now have a center for psychedelic research. So I was much. very fortunate. Sorry? I love that so much. Yeah, I was, I was super, thanks. Um, I was super fortunate and grateful to kind of like for that opportunity to come, you know, across for me. And now I've really gotten a chance to help kind of build our center. We started out with um, our first study was a study of psilocybin for major depressive disorder. And, and we are what is known as a clinical trial site. So we don't tend to sponsor or primarily organize the research studies that we work on, but we're, we're one of some sites or sometimes of many sites who are working on the same study. These are FDA registered studies. Um, they're often done under the auspices of the DEA as well as in psychedelic controlled substances in the majority of situations. So, you know, like one study we're working on now has like 20 plus different sites across the country. Another one is going to have 80 or so sites around the entire world. So we're part of a network of sites, you know, spanning the nation or sometimes even the U.S. and Europe working on the same study protocols. So it's, it's kind of exciting to be a part of kind of this larger group and movement towards investigating the safety and effectiveness of psychedelics for a variety of mental health um, treatments. So right now we have um, a study that we're working on of LSD to treat generalized anxiety disorder and another study, psilocybin, to treat what's known as treatment-resistant depression. And then we are also about to start a study of 5-MeO-DMT, which is um, another psychedelic people. Some people know of it's gaining in popularity and, I would say, awareness. Um, that one is also for treatment-resistant depression. So we're starting to see a variety of the psychedelic kind of molecules being studied for various disorders, depression, anxiety, substance use disorder, eating disorder, some for neurological indications like stroke or memory issues. There's really kind of, it's, there's, it's snowballing in terms of the, the types of things that are being done. And in the next few years, we'll start to probably see what we would call new chemical entities or you know, psychedelics that people maybe haven't really heard of or are or, or more obscure starting to be studied as well. One, I think one thing that's really important to know about these sorts of studies is as compared to most psychiatric drug treatments, they aren't just sort of given as a standalone treatment. They are given in the what we would call sort of a set and setting protocol, which may include sometimes psychotherapy elements, but certainly a very intensive psychological support. The, they can vary a little bit from study to study, but the basic kind of framework is the same in which one to two therapists work with each subject in our study. There's usually three to six hours of preparation sessions with each subject to kind of help build rapport and connection between this group that's going to go into the dosing together. So three to six hours, like three to six different sessions where you meet ahead of time. Some of them, some of them are done kind of split up. Some of, some of, some of the studies have it done all together. Kind of we'll do just a three to four hour session with a person a few days ahead of time. Other ones will have kind of one hour sessions done in the few weeks before. So that there can be some variation exactly how it's structured, but there's, you know, several hours of, of preparation time. The dosing is done at our center, but it's not really a, a feeling of a clinical setting at all. It really feels like someone's living room. 
And the way it works is we have people lie back on a comfy couch. We have a musical playlist that's conducive to an introspective kind of journey. We offer eye masks, you know, and typical kind of psychedelic psychotherapy protocol. But if people aren't familiar with it, it's really meant to help people go inside. And the therapists are there to talk if there are things to talk about. But it's often um, meant to support people exploring their own minds and seeing kind of what comes up for them, any different thoughts or emotions that maybe are important for them to experience. You said one to two therapists. Does it depend on like the medicine that you're using, whether you decide one depends. this first two? It depends on the study, actually. So some of the study protocols specify that there is a lead therapist and an assistant therapist for every participant. And then uh, some of the other study protocols are starting to experiment with more of the one-on-one therapist per you know subject in our study. So it, it's, it, it, I mean, it'll be really interesting to explore, you know, in the future, more individualized kind of treatment plans. But right now in these stu- study protocols, they tend to keep things kind of uniform per the study. So that's kind of the, the difference there. So certainly it's really nice usually to have two therapists with each participant in our study, but it's also pretty, you know, um, intensive in terms of resources, therapist time. And uh, there's a lot of exploration being done about how to increase access for psychedelic treatments, you know, uh, either currently available ones like ketamine or, you know, these ones that we're trying to make available through our studies. How, how do we cre- increase access and having two therapists per, per each patient is probably not a great way to have as much access as we would like. Exactly. Yeah. Because that's one thing my clinic that I want to offer everything that's going to become um, legalized, you know, as a resource, because we still have patients that maybe may not be able to work through all their traumas, you know, and then we have MDMA coming out. But if we're going to have to have two licensed therapists in the room, an eight hour, you know, that's very intensive for the therapist. It's a long day, but it's also a long room. How is it going to be financially like accessible for patients while also us being able to open our doors? You know, it's not that we want to be so profitable and make you know people think oh the clinics it's so profitable it's like no we're trying to reach out and help people and want to give access to them but also need to keep our doors open so i'm very curious as everything comes to light once it becomes all legalized i know you said you were saying um you had started with psilocybin trials for the treatment resistant depression how how far are those you know because we're thinking oh mdma in 2024 where's psilocybin in your in your research yeah i mean these estimates are Sometimes you have to take worth a grain of salt. There are, we're all there's, hoping and like waiting. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few different groups working on psilocybin for depression. Uh, I would say it's they're probably at each at least a couple of years behind MDMA, plus or minus. But you know, the the thing that I've learned about working in these clinical trials is you know every estimate you just assume it's going to be longer than what they <laughs> say. And there's just a, always something that is a delay for one reason or another. It's it's really, you know, working in medicine in general, there's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape. But, you know, with, with these clinical trials of all the different regulatory bodies involved and, you know, maybe for good reason to protect safety and make sure things are really done, you know, in, in the public's best interests, in our participants' best interests. But it does require a lot of patience as, a, as, you know, with my clinical mindset and wanting to, like, get in there and help people and just remind myself, you know, these are... These are scientific studies and, you know, they need to be done according to, you know, the FDA's um, regulations, even if sometimes I find that, you know, personally frustrating or in certain situations seems 
like it's not in the best interest of the participants it's it's in the best interest of the public to follow these um these protocols or, or at least that's the premise we're operating under yeah and you are always looking for participants and so we'll definitely you know share how to go in and see if you guys qualify for studies those listeners out there um yeah, but with absolutely. each with each study you know you have very strict variables that you need to control so a lot of them are with like medications and speaking to the medications i know that you know my listeners everyone is on different medications and so it is you know for safety you know we definitely don't condone the legal use of you know these substances at all but for those that are going to go to you know let's say where psilocybin is legalized or where they go to different retreats what are some concerns that you have you know obviously as a physician that you look at with like medications that you know, some people will want to stop cold turkey so they can go to um, Peru and do medicine or in Costa Rica. And, you know, what are the safety concerns that you look towards and look at with like medications and um, contraindications for the, for the different medicines? Yeah, I mean, that that there's, it's a wonderful question and it's hard to give a blanket answer. I would say, you know, ideally one should be able to consult their prescribing physician about this question. But the fact of the matter is we don't have always a lot of science right now and many prescribing physicians just aren't really all that aware of what potential interactions there could be there's certain things like we know people shouldn't do like if you're taking a maoi or a monoamine oxidase inhibitor which is a type of drug not so often prescribed anymore but you know if you take that and go to ayahuasca you can get you know very sick and even potentially have you know life-threatening you know sort of symptoms in terms of there's a whole plethora potential drug drug interactions that can happen between you know prescribed psychotropic medications and even any sort of medication you're being prescribed and psychedelics you know far too lengthy to <laughs> even if i knew it i it would be very tedious for me to list it all out and i don't know it like but there in are like general like, like psilocybin for example psilocybin, i would, like, I would uh, say there eyes and i would say that people should really though go online and start to consult resources like the spirit pharmacist who is a pharmacist uh who has a lot of resources online you know look at those resources bring them to your doctor you know don't make this decision on your own then you may even be able to find you know pharmacists like you know the spirit pharmacist uh, I forget his name actually but that's his website where you can get those resources so i wouldn't just assume that it's going to be okay one of the most common kind of interactions, though, is that if you're taking, say, an antidepressant and you take, you know, psilocybin or MDMA, you might not experience that strong of an effect um, because those drugs can sometimes blunt the response to those um, psychedelics. Now, you really would really want to be careful in terms of taking any more than that because, you know, we, do, we, we don't have science here. So, you know, um, in terms of more harm reduction sort of techniques, I know a little bit, maybe a little bit enough to be dangerous, but probably not enough to give great advice. The other, the other thing is, is if you're doing it on your own versus are you doing it with some sort of practitioner, you want to consult the practitioner because if they don't know, that's a problem. They should know because they're the one offering you the psychedelic and the psychedelic treatment. I think it's a problem when they say, well, go ask someone else when they're the one offering the psychedelic. That's to me a bit of a red flag um, in terms of, you know, there's a lot we don't know, but you it, you know, a lot of underground practitioners or people doing ceremonies, if they've been around for a while, then they should know from experience. Yeah. And that's a great uh, point to take note, you know, for everyone out there. 
you know, if you are looking to go into like a retreat space or go into something underground, you know, when you are talking to them, they should be doing a medical consult with you. They need to know all the medications you're on, all the history. If they're not doing that, that is a red flag. You know, you should know, they should know what's on board, what medications, what other drugs, all that, because there are interactions. I mean, there's even with different, with like ayahuasca, you have to eat a certain diet, you know, uh, in preparation that can really alter your, you know, your experience and could be harmful in certain cases. So, you know, definitely, you know, take note of that when going out and searching for retreat spaces. I think that's a good rule of thumb. The, 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 the sad thing is, is like at this point, you know, the science is still being very much restricted because a lot of the psychedelics are in schedule one and makes it extremely cumbersome to do, you know, research studies like ours, uh, working with the DEA is, you know, we have a whole team that's devoted to, you know, tasks like that. And maybe that's right now kind of in the public expense interest, but then so much research is put places that don't have the resources that we do to do that. Like they're not able to do the kinds of research that could help answer these questions better. So um, if it does turn out that you know, studies like ours help to prove that there is some medical use, it will make research sort of restrictions become much more loosened and that will help provide more science to help answer these questions for people. And your, um, when you're actually um, sitting with and facilitating an actual experience, you know, I do have a question with the LSE because that seems like a really long day. Like how many hours is the effect? But in essence, you know, if you're, you were saying like it's more introspective, so you're sitting with the patient and then, um, you know, offering assistance as they're like within themselves, do you guys actually have therapy or is it something that they're there within themselves the whole time? We sort of encourage people to enter that day prepared to take a journey within their own mind. But we also tell them, you know, this is your day and we're going to let, you know, the the sort of drug session experience, you know, let, let it be led by your intuition of how you want to spend the time. We are here to make sure you're safe. You don't, you know, in an altered state of consciousness, make any sort of bad judgment calls and do anything that would be unwise. But we're also, you know, within that sort of framework, you're pretty free to kind of experience the day however you like. And so I would say the majority of people um, do find that that introspective space for much of the time is helpful, but almost everyone does want to pop out and talk a little bit or get some sort of support. We've had some individuals that talk the entire time or walk around the room and we say, that's fine too. You, you do what, what, what feels right to you. And we don't necessarily um, have, have any assumptions about how that day is supposed to go, except that your safety is protected and that you experience that day in whatever way you want to experience it. Thanks. Yeah. And how long is a, a session for? Because somebody had told me that they aren't studying LSD. So I was like, but actually, I know somebody who is <laughs> because of the length of time that it's not feasible for them, you know, in the session. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of questions about, you know, you know, the the LSD is a 12-hour dosing. If you look at things like uh, Iboga or Ibogaine, that can be, you know, a 24-hour sometimes uh, sort of session versus, you know, um, you know, like IV DMT can be like a 10-minute, you know, sort of session. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of different duration of action available out there. Certainly, back to the access question, if it's short shorter acting 
sort of psychedelic experience is just as good as a longer acting, then great, that's less resource intensive. There is an emerging body of evidence that suggests so that longer acting psychedelics well, to take a step back, we think that psychedelics likely increase neuroplasticity or the ability of the brain to make new changes, form new connections, have new brain cells or neurons grow. And that that isn't only true during the dosing session, but can be true in the time after the dosing session. And so there's a sort of period or window of neuroplasticity that we think occurs after a dosing session. And there's a uh, really an emerging body of research that's growing more and more robust that the longer acting psychedelics have longer periods of neuroplasticity after the dosing. So for instance, Ibogaine, which one of the longest acting trips that we know, that period of neuroplasticity can sometimes be, I think somewhere between like four to eight weeks, LSD, wow. you know, up to four weeks. So you, you get like these longer time frames versus once you start getting into shorter acting, they can have very powerful experiences, but maybe, and this is all on average, on average, that period of plasticity or that window um, is also shorter. So, yeah, no, with ketamine, it's about 24 to 48 hours. Right. So, so yeah. dosing will like keep dosing within that time frame as they go up. Yeah. that That's a, another way of potentially um, expanding upon, you know, that, that period. So, you know, these longer dosing sessions, you know, could potentially you know, w what's better? Is it better to do, you know, serial sort of ketamine? Is it better to do one LSD? We don't know. Maybe that's a study that'll be done someday, but we, it would be nice to have kind of these longer periods because um, sometimes you can't get everything you want to get done in 24 to 48 hours. <laughs> but, you know, whether it's, you know, kind of having serial treatments, whether it's having just, you know, one long acting session, you know, this is again where we'll probably get more into individualized sort of psychedelic research, you know, in the future. Right now, it's certainly more of an art than a science sometimes. Yeah, because in these studies, you know, you know, is it one LSD session, one psilocybin session, and that's what you guys are studying? Or what's the protocol that you guys... Yeah, it depends on the protocol. And, and so the FDA has different sort of phases of research when you're wanting to, you know, potentially um, have a certain drug approved. There's phase one studies, which are safety studies. They're very small studies, and they're really done in kind of what we would call a, a healthy volunteer population without any specific medical or psychiatric diagnoses. Uh, then you go on to phase two studies, which you get continued safety data, but then you also are starting to look at the effectiveness of one of the drugs for a specific treatment indication or problem like generalized anxiety or major depressor, depression, you know, alcohol use disorder, whatever it is. Those are often single dose studies just because the FDA likes it done that way to see if there is a signal for treatment of efficacy um, or effectiveness. But when you get to phase three, then we start to see the more often studies being geared towards multi-doses where, for instance, uh, one of our psilocybin studies right now is for treatment-resistant depression. There are different parts of the study, but basically there are two doses three weeks apart in the, uh, in the first part of the study. And then if someone reaches treatment re remission, then we just follow them. If they don't reach treatment re remission, they get the opportunity for two more doses um, as the study goes on. So in that study, you can get up to up to four doses um, and a minimum of two. So there's, and there's a many, uh, many different ways of structuring, you know, how these studies uh, could be done in the phase three. We're starting to see more and more kind of innovative treatment protocols that probably would bore 
you and your listeners, maybe not you, but your listeners. I could nerd out all day on these. <laughs> yeah, there, we, we do think that, you know, people could benefit maybe from, from multiple treatments. Um, and so some of the studies are, are starting to be geared that way to see if, if that helps. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, ketamine is nice in that it's a shorter acting, right? You're in and out of your appointment in two hours. But you need six to eight, ten. You know, we're doing studies now. What is the most effective? You know, going into that is it six yeah. done or six? Then you know, right. tapering into a monthly situation. Whereas, I guess the MDMA protocols are saying like two, right? Then there is some studies and John Hopkins for example, smoking cessation where it was one. You know, psilocybin yeah. or alcohol. So it's, I guess it's yeah. going to really be variable as the, the time well, goes. Yeah, and some of the, I guess some of the study protocols are done not always because they think this is the best way for the treatment to be done, but just because where they're at in terms of investigating that specific, you know, drug for a specific treatment, that's the sort of study protocol that's called for. So like, for instance, our LSD study now is a single dose because it's a phase two study. That's what the FDA wants. As we as that study goes on to phase three, there may be a strong chance that they do have a multi-dosing um, possibility. That'll be up to the kind of the FDA and the the sponsor of, of of the treatment, the company, to kind of decide. You know, in terms of what makes sense. But um, yeah, sometimes you know these study protocols aren't necessarily like, oh, we think this is the definitely the way to treat alcohol or nicotine use disorder with psilocybin. It's just the study has to be done this way because scientifically that's what's called for. And with these studies, I'm curious, do you actually use placebos? Do people not get the medicine when you're doing these studies? Yeah, almost all of the, certainly the phase two and phase three studies have some sort of placebo control, which is is, uh, what we call double-blinded, where neither the participants in our studies nor uh, the therapists or treatment providers know what treatment they are getting. Now, um, there is a lot of questions and, and sort of evidence to show that that blinding doesn't always work because people can sort of sometimes guess what they got because of how they feel. And the therapist might be able to guess because of behavioral changes that they observe in the participants. But there's starting to be more and more sort of innovative designs to have some masking of that. And also, um, you know, in general, like, yeah, they're, they're, um, if the signal is strong enough, if efficacy is strong enough for a drug, then we think that maybe the unblinding isn't all that important. So there's a lot of different ways of, of looking at this and a lot of different opinions out there. There's also starting to be a lot more questioning of the, is the randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study that's kind of been the norm for, you know, ever with the FDA and still has a lot of, you know, still has a lot of relevance. Are there other ways of doing this that could be similarly, you know, scientifically rigorous um, and maybe even more effective in terms of investigating the sort of questions we want to answer especially for those that are like suffering in that treatment resistance and they're just so hopeful and then to not get yeah. actual medicine yeah that's it's really hard sad to, for me. you know it, it's hard to remind people that these are scientific studies and a premise of, of the study is that um they may not get better now we're starting to see more studies that have what we would call an open label extension so that if they're not finding any sort of improvement in the first stages of the study, you know, a few weeks or months in, we we will offer them say, hey, we're going to give you the high dose of the psychedelic unblinded. We all know it. 
that way there is a kind of a sense that everyone will get a chance um okay. to have make me feel better <laughs> yeah okay, good good yeah there's there there are some drawbacks scientifically sometimes for doing that because you don't always get to compare the different groups long term anymore because everyone ends up getting a dose but there's other advantages including you know uh, maybe ethically feeling like you know these these drug studies are very different than a lot of drug studies because there is so much hype there is so many people using them you know in the community like no one was taking Prozac underground before when the drug trials right, were happening exactly. for Prozac. So, uh, you know, th- there's there's definitely a lot of different considerations that, that we have in terms of running these sorts of studies and knowing that people are watching documentaries and listening to podcasts and, you know, doing all sorts of things to learn about it, whereas other sorts of drug studies that just it's very uncommon to happen. I do understand also in the one sense in the study is you know, also the work that you're doing, like the the prep sessions and the therapy and really doing that work as well, that even outside of the study, patients aren't getting, right? There's a lot of patients even coming for treatment for me that don't have, aren't working with the therapist. They aren't, mm-hmm. you know, working right. regularly to try to treat. Essentially, we're going to the cause, the root cause and the subconscious mind. And, you know, that's why we actually require and provide integration coaching, you know, with ours in the prep sessions, integration, you know, we have specialists in the office now, um, you know, who's amazing with our patients, just setting intentions and really holding that space. That in itself, sometimes we have patients that just want that from us, you know, just come in to speak with us. And that's so important. So there is Mm -hmm. that factor that there could be improvement just with all the therapy and coaching that you guys are providing in in sense. So I see that end, but then I also... Mm -hmm. You know, hopefully you guys are going to do the open, open study afterwards for those that do still struggle. Is that, yeah. is that an opportunity for you guys to do that? Yeah, that, that again is, would be, you know, kind of a protocol specific does oh, right, the study, right. you know, spot, uh, you know, as organized by the sponsors that, you know, kind of specify it as an option. Um, more and more, we are seeing studies that, that have that because for a variety of reasons. So it's, it's really nice when that option is, is, is available. It kind of varies from study to study. I, before we actually end this um, conversation, I did want you to kind of talk to my audience and let them know if they're interested in uh, joining a study, where they mm-hmm. can go, what studies uh, you are looking for participants in at this time. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for mentioning that. Um, so I think going to our website is probably, you know, the number one thing just to, and, and, you can put, you know, an inquiry into, it's, it's pre- pretty easy to find a way to kind of, you know, sign up via the website uh, for someone to call you, or you can call us on the website. And so the website is seagultrials.com, S-E-G-A-L trials.com. Uh, um, so that's probably the best way to kind of, you know, the, the website has some information, but the best way is just to get on a call with some of our people where they'll start to ask questions and you'll get some of your questions answered about kind of the studies. Right now, we have uh, still the LSD for generalized anxiety, psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, um, or, or uh, also there is the 5-MeO-DMT starting soon for treatment-resistant depression, and we're likely to have uh, another study of a psychedelic for, it'll be a phase one study, so people who are uh, kind of healthy volunteers that don't have any previous kind of psychiatric problems or serious medical problems. And then, you know, we, we're always having studies then and then new studies, new studies start. So, you know, depending on when people are listening to this, if it's, you know, six months or a year from now, like it could be very different than, you know, what we have now. So 
Um, our, our center is growing a lot. We expect, you know, maybe this time next year, we'll have six to seven different studies ongoing at the same time, very large studies. So yeah, it's kind of a constantly shifting landscape. Um, you can also contact me on my Instagram, drscottfisher.com, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-F-I-S-H-E-R. Um, I don't always post a lot on there, depending on kind of how busy I am, but um, people do often message me on there with questions and things like that. So that can be a nice way just to, to kind of reach out if you want to learn more about our studies and or have someone contact you to, to see about your eligibility to participate in a study. So we definitely are always, we're always looking for, you know, new subjects and new participants. And, you know, it's um, the, the process is quite in depth uh, in terms of, you know, the assessments. And on the, actually right on the website, right at the very top, it's um, like a button that you can press to look at the studies to apply to be part of a study. Yeah. And it also said that you were looking to, to hire. So are you also looking for more guides or help? with sitters as well in your facilities yeah actually we are wanting to hire um uh, you know it's kind of an ongoing basis but therapists you know licensed therapists we're often looking for we're looking for clinical research coordinators very often research assistants um seagulls just a rapidly growing company in general but mds psychiatric nurse practitioners um you know so again depending on when people are listening to this if if they or someone they know is looking to potentially pursue a career in clinical research and or in psychedelic kind of studies, then, you know, um, reach out to me on, on my Instagram or um, going to the, you know, the hiring page of our website could be, could be fruitful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your work, Dr. Fisher. It's been, Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice watching it on the sidelines and seeing you guys grow and seeing all the research that you're doing. And I send, uh, you know, I have your cards in our office. So trying to, help with recruitment or um, different studies so yeah thank you so much we we definitely appreciate all the referrals and um yeah sometimes we we tell some of our people about you guys as well so yes thank you <laughs> There's definitely some cross feedback there <laughs> beautiful i love that well thank you for your time and my pleasure thank you sonia yes everyone this is sonia Cato and dr scott fisher you have a beautiful day The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.